Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to another episode of Revcovery. I'm just so happy to welcome you. My name is Justin. My co-host is Sarah. And our guest this week is Kathleen Falsani. And this is a good one, folks. Kathleen is a seminarian by education, but a journalist by trade. She spent most of her time covering religion and covering the various movements and things, things that we were all a part of. And so her perspective on this ministry thing that we are all rev covering from is fascinating and interesting. And I really just can't wait to share this episode with you. It's so good. And if you want to continue to the discussion uh, afterwards, uh, go to patreon.com slash revcovery. Uh, there you can get access to our discord uh, where we continue the conversation every week. And it's always so very good. So thanks so much for listening to this little intro. And without further ado, here is Kathleen Falsani. Friends, hello. It's so good to see you. How are you? They can't normally respond. Normally we do a long intro. Listen, <laughs> normally we do a long intro and then we do another intro. So this is us trying to just act like we're jumping into a conversation as if we haven't been talking before this. But now <laughs> our right. listeners know that we both don't know what we're doing. Like we do. How many of these have we done? So many episodes. This and is yet, episode 42, 44. 43. <laughs> 40, Nobody 40. knows what they're doing, right? It's in yeah. the early 40s, as as are we. Um, as are we. Oh, yeah. that's cute. I'll take that, too. I'm so not in my early uh, you're 40s. You're in the but, early um, 40 club this week. Yeah, you totally are. It's great <laughs> here. So five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I hated my 40s, so. My yeah. friend Kathleen is, is a phenomenal writer, journalist, speaker, actually, as well. And I thought it would be fun to have you on. I love that right before the show, Kathleen's <laughs> like, why do you want me to come on? Kathleen went to seminary as well. So, so tell a little bit about what you did as well as going to seminary. So many moons ago, gather around children. <laughs> many moons ago, I went to Garrett Seminary, which is a United Methodist Seminary on the campus of Northwestern University in outside Chicago. At the same time, I as I was getting a master's degree in journalism at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern with the express idea and intention to be trained to cover religion in mainstream media, and in my case, newspapers. And then I was really blessed to, for the next about 20 years, do just that. Although I don't do it daily anymore, I still keep my toe in the journalism pool. But that's how I wound up at seminary. I have never been Methodist, and I don't have an MDiv. I had the great unwashed MTS but I see the MTS uh, at my seminary were the smart ones because they were the ones who were going oh, straight yeah, well, into obviously, obviously <laughs> straight into PhD programs. Like they're who I hung out with, not because I was smart, but because, well, for lots of reasons, I didn't fit into seminary. 
and uh, the like cool, interesting folks were MTS students at first. Then I found lots of cool folks getting their MD- MDiv as well. But they were like, you know, the ones who were like, they never said one right time on at my PhD church. Track. Yeah. And they never said one time at my church ever <laughs> in class. Like they were like the ones who yeah. were like, no, I already took Greek for like 10 years or whatever. <laughs> like, for fun. The- Right. right. They were always the super bright ones. So I am not surprised you got your MTS. Yeah, that was me. I, I'm always, I, well, I most often find myself as an outlier in whatever situation I'm in. And I certainly was at seminary because everybody else was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get my PhD in this. I want to be a professor. I want to be a pastor. I want to be blah, blah. I was like, I want to be a newspaper reporter. And they're like, what? <laughs> and my thesis that I wrote, like a series of long articles, they didn't know what to do with it. I remember arguing with a librarian about how it should be filed. Bless her. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. And then, you know, as I've said, Sarah's heard me say this umpteen times over the years, I went to church for a living for yeah. 20 years, basically. And some of my best friends are clergy and recovering clergy. So there's that. Yeah. It's so fascinating because you see, have seen the trends in a way that I think most people haven't. And then you are also in an industry that is pivoting. For for our younger a listeners, a newspaper is a print. <laughs> it's actually paper. It's actually paper. Oh man! So I was funny. I was thinking this morning on my hike about fondly, wistfully, wistfully is the right word. About one of my first weeks, I used to be uh, the religion reporter for the Chicago Sun Times. So I was there for ten years before we moved out here to California, and. When I first started, it was in the old Sometimes building where there's now a Trump hotel. Kill me. And yeah. And when I first started, this was in 2000, way back in 2000, the printing presses were actually still in the building. And I remember one of the first weeks I was there, they they moved out shortly thereafter. I think they moved out of the building by by the time 9-11 happened. They were I think they were already out of the building, moved to a different plant. But. I remember working really late on some kind of breaking news story. And by the time I was walking out, there was a lot, there was a long corridor of windows where you could actually see the printing presses and I could see my story coming off. <sighs> yeah, that was really cool. That's cool. It was really cool. It was magic. And I've never loved a job more in my life than I did working for the Chicago sometimes. It was just wonderful. And then things kind of went. Well, they went sideways a few times during my journalistic career, but then they really went sideways. And most of the most of the people that I came up with who were my journalism elders in the religion reporting beat are have left the beat long ago. Their jobs were became redundant, as the Brits say, <laughs> um, or untenable for other reasons, like papers being bought by maniacs and you know, stripped for parts. And a lot of the folks that were my contemporaries, I think there was a, the day that I no longer had a job at the Sun-Times after I'd been out here for about six months and continued writing my column from here, there was a reduction and before layoffs and I was expensive and they didn't really need a religion columnist based in California writing for a Chicago newspaper. But the, the week that I left the beat, there were like six or seven other senior reporters on the beat who also left. And that was, you know, 13 years ago, 12 years ago. And it's the attrition just continued. And um, the way religion is covered now, largely, I 
don't agree with how mm. it's done because there's too much opinion and not enough state for straight reporting. And that it was never about that. You were either a straight reporter or a columnist, or like me, you were a straight reporter six days a week and one day a week you had a column, but you never wrote a column about something that you were covering in, in the straight news. Uh-huh. And all of those boundaries just seem to have By the way, she means straight like no opinion, not straight like Because if you know Kathy, you know she's 100% Oops. affirming and inclusive. Super! Super ally. And oh, it and have been for many, 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 many years from from since the summer after I graduated from the college that we won't mention. Yeah, that's a fun piece, too, because I feel like you've been in recovery from that. Yeah, I finally took it off my CV um, oh. about three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you don't want to own me. I don't want any part of that. So bye. Oh, you, Northwestern you just, will claim me. You can just take it off your resume. I didn't know you could just take it off your resume. When, when, well, Again, gather around children and let me know, tell you what happens in midlife. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can take it off. Mm-hmm. Even, again, if you have advanced when you, when degrees, you, nobody you gain cares a certain you amount of experience. Doesn't yep. matter. Nope, doesn't matter. But I spent some time in the evangelical, the hotbed, the mecca of evangelicalism before it became the kind of evangelicalism that we popular understand today, which isn't what that was and that I want absolutely no part of. Yeah, evangelicalism kind of took a turn there. Yep. Or maybe it was yeah, always... Right around 2015, 2016. It was headed that way for a long yeah. time, but yeah. So what They're happened in 2016 <laughs> to make... Uh, it's also interesting, I would say most... I wouldn't say most, but I would say a good chunk of our listeners and a good chunk of folks in our Discord will say 2016 was the was year I yep. couldn't do it anymore. Yep. Yep, I've heard that so, so, so many times. And uh, yeah, it's gross what's out there and what's, you know, happened to that community. Actually, what was actually that community? Let's go think back 15 years ago and what evangelicalism meant and looked like. I don't know where most of those people went Mm. because the ones who are claiming that title now are just fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. It's the polar opposite of what you know, Billy Graham, when he recoined the usage of evangelicalism back in the 50s, it was to define it in reaction against fundamentalism. And now it's just become that. Yeah. So that is something that people don't, I think, realize. I know. Um, is that the shift, like it was originally uh, supposed to be like a, a a response. I guess everything's a response, right? A response right. to what seemed like um, over, like even like here where I live, as Kathy can tell you, is where like this was a hotbed of the like movement away from like the formalization of religion. So like one guy was a surfer, started promoting a church, and now then a bunch of people went there because it was the place you could just be yourself. You could wear blue jeans and go to church. But that what they didn't realize was that it came with a pretty hefty conservative slant, which is fascinating because I think that you know your question of where are they? I think a lot of them are part of the deconstructed community. I think a yep. lot of them are people who like dip their toes into mainline Christianity for a while. And a lot of them are people who just are done. Yeah, I think all of that. And 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 I, it would be really interesting, Jack Jenkins, if you're listening to this, um, this, one of the religion journalists who I actually I like what he does and how he does it for religion news service in Washington. I would find it really interesting for somebody to do a deep dive and go, so what is the percentage of people who actually wound up in the MAGA cult? 
It's yeah. not really like if, if you look at evangelicals for 15, for 15 years ago, if you look at the Willow Creek people before Me Too and all that took the knees out from what should have had its knees taken out from, frankly, like wh- where did those people go? And I don't think it's as high a percentage as is popularly imagined it is. I think there's been a, and I'm, you know, I'm not a, an academic. I am not a, a professional studier of such things. Sort of a, I guess I am a professional watcher of such things. I just don't study them. So I don't know what the numbers would be, but that, like, I just don't think that as a monolith or anything approaching a monolith, whatever evangelicalism looked like 15 years ago, whole, wholeheartedly shifted over to what we, what it is today. I think it's a tiny yeah. fraction of that, which yeah. in a lot of people just went in all directions. Yeah, I, I do think that there are there there are a lot of passive evangelicals in the sense yeah. that like this is just what I do, like right. and you know I this don't is have just to think about it. I don't have to think about it. You know, and maybe a lot of them gravitated towards megachurches. You know, yeah. just as like because you can kind of you can kind of just put in your time there. You go in, you do your thing, yeah, I, come out. Oh, I just like, read something about that, how it's so much easier to be anonymous and unconnected from actual community in, yeah. in those big churches that you only get sort of winged by the whole agenda, right? Yeah. And so you have to go to a small group. You have to go to like the extra stuff to get the like more conservative. Now, a lot of those people, I would guess, still tend to vote very conservative, held their nose for, you know, Donald Trump or whoever. but like. So it's, 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 yeah, they're not in the MAGA cult, the vocal ones that I think drove a lot of our listeners out of the church. But I think functionally, there are a lot of people that at least align with the MAGA cult, maybe more than they would. They say, we're not like those people, but you look at how they vote, you look what they support, you look at what they they donate to. It's the same thing. Uh, They just weren't there on January 6th, which is, which is a plus. That's a bonus. Like you weren't, if you weren't present on January 6th, good for you but but that, i mean and i think that's why as if you're a pastor that got into ministry because you want to you want to love people mm-hmm. or you wanted to do good in the world then suddenly it seemed sudden i think it's you know kind of like the frog boiling in yeah. the pot i mean it, it, it yeah. was happening for a while but it felt sudden all of a sudden it's like oh i i gotta be down for all this stuff too yeah or i'm kicked out Right. I, I I didn't I didn't sign up to be a Republican. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted or to, I didn't sign up to, to church. Yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to surf to church. I didn't sign up for all this other stuff. And I think there's there's a lot of folks that are out. There's a lot of folks that deconstructed. And I mean that's that's where Sarah and I ended up. Where a lot of our listeners ended up. I I have I've, I'm one of those, and I think there's this, if you start looking at the slightly older demographics. Although this is a little bit of a new car syndrome where you, when you get a new car, you start, you suddenly spot all the other same models of the car that you're driving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I've, I've just drifted into the mystic where it just doesn't, none of this matters. Yeah. It's all just big thought of unknowing and I'm fine with that and labels, meh. And, you know, yeah, non-dualism is, is is my jam but i th- i think it's really hard for a lot of i think you have to have some life experience before you can start to let go in in that way i mean i don't think there are a lot of 20 year old mystics right? no there's a lot of 20 year olds that have like t-shirts that say they're mystics i am yeah it's sweet 
20 year olds that are listening and maybe they are and i and i i'm gonna say a very you know con- aspiring contemplative thing to say it's like, i i could be absolutely wrong about that and perhaps there are some really highly spiritually evolved people who are a lot younger i mean anybody anybody any age can be a mystic but in my experience the folks that i've bumped into tend to be a slightly longer in the tooth and uh certainly you guys are in your 40s i'm in my early 50s and the entire time i've known you Eve, i've been just it's been a series of just letting go and grieving mm-hmm. losses and i've fi- i turned 50 in the first year of lockdown <laughs> me oh. my husband our dog the bird and i turned 40 uh, uh, we always, we always know exactly how we're right near each other. other. Yeah. Yeah. And we're exactly 10 years apart. I know. And, uh, me and Maury, the dog, the bird, and like a hundred helium balloons that I kept having, um, Instacart deliver little helium to my house. Maury's like, why? He knows I like balloons. Now, oh, hey, balloons just got outlawed in my town. So I couldn't do this again if I wanted to without being fined by the village. Uh, which is good because we live on the ocean and, you know, we don't want balloons to kill the seals or the marine life. But yeah, it wasn't the way I ever envisioned turning 50, but I, it's what happened. And I happened to be in the middle of my first year, first six months at the living school with Richard Rohr at the time. So the last two years has been about getting way more comfortable with having lost so much and grieved a lot and just i have no idea what's happening next and every day i get a slightly more comfortable with that and my goal these days is to try to be a non-anxious presence in the world that's it that's that's my spiritual goal that is my professional goal (laughs) that is my goal well, I think that's what you're saying is so important, especially for those of us who grow grew up. And as a lot of the listeners know my story, like I chose evangelicalism. I wasn't raised in it. I just really wanted to be a good American. So I decided to like dip my toe in it. But we were taught like, once you have this thing, then you don't have to do the grief. You don't have to do the letting go. You don't have to like, because everything happens for a reason now. And as long as I get enough sayings from Hobby Lobby, I'm going to feel okay. And I think one of the gifts I feel like having friends that are just a little bit older than me is I have seen you have to grieve a career that once you were like, like if people were looking for someone who was going to write about a thing, it was always you or an author. And now being a like being an author right now is not like I know you've got many great books, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a ton of money coming in. And it's a lot of work. Yes. (laughs) It's a lot of work. And so I think watching you sort of kind of do. do Flail is the word. Flail, I I believe is the word. But like I'm on the outside. I flailed hard. But yeah. Non-anxious flailing presence (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Which is just swimming. We've known each other about a decade. So it's 10 years ago. I was, I was. You met me slightly pre-flail, and then there was like five years of like hard flailing and slightly less flailing, and then 
I got really but tired. Isn't that supposed to be part of it? I mean, yeah. all of, a lot of us have studied Joseph Campbell. I wrote a book on Joseph Campbell, like this idea mm-hmm. of like understanding our lives as a narrative. And yet the mm-hmm. moment we hit the part that we're supposed to be like, that we're going through the thing, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't supposed to flail. And I'm no. ashamed of it. I'm not afraid of it. And our, I mean, so many people in our Discord talk about like, the reason I'm here is that I didn't know there were other people who are going through this. Mm-hmm. And when I try to explain it to anyone else, they're all just like, what's the big deal? Like, for, for some reason, it feels like journalism and ministry have this like, they're such a unique thing that trying to explain it to other people when you leave, why it's hard to do something else is, yeah. is very hard. Hard to switch it off. Yeah. Hard to switch off that. I mean, and I'm married to a journalist slash former journalist who basically still does the journalism they did before but in the private sector and we can't everything comes to us through like ooh, that's a story yeah and we do it a little later a little less than we used to because it was there's a story and now we go where the fuck are we going to write that who who would pay us to write that that's really <laughs> the question yeah. you know there's not that idealistic i'll write where it and then we... the money will come no, that doesn't. That's not cute. After you were doing it for twenty five years, and somebody yeah. was actually paying you and giving you benefits. So, it's yeah. There's that. There are parallel, and they're they're both about explaining people to each other, mm-hmm. and yeah. and understanding the power of story, right? So, yeah, I picked the uh, the Venn diagram of like how to completely not have a career in midlife by choosing like journalism but writing about faith and spirituality. And then also my backup publishing. That was a great move. Oh, nice. I was destined to be a thousand air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you live in uh, an expensive area of California. Oh yeah. 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 We have no business living here, but it's pretty. So. Yeah. So how do you, you know, you say this non-anxious present thing. I think so many I mean, that's a word I use all the time. And actually, you know, what's strange is that's something that people have said about me, which I think is hilarious because I, as someone who lives with OCD and ADHD, I feel like I should be the most anxious presence people have ever met. But yeah, but you're um, not. <laughs> it's all in here, baby. Um, I, I think, how do you, how do you hold on to that sense of like, I don't have to worry? Is it, do you think that's just maturing out of it? Or what do you like? No, it's hard work. I mean, yeah. this is, they call it practice, right? A contemplative practice or a meditation practice for a reason, because you have to continually do the work. It's just like, I started working regularly with a trainer around the same time I was turning 50. And, you know, my, my arms look pretty, I'm strong. And, but they go away if you stop lifting the things. You know, yeah. and if you don't yeah. do the practice, it's not like I'm not trying to earn God's grace. This is something entirely different. This is not an unearnable gift. This is something you have to practice and do and train your mind to do and train your heart to do and train your body to do. And it's something that I have to come back to literally daily, multiple times a day, you know, multiple, multiple times an hour. Sometimes just to, I've gotten to the point where I recognize at least when I'm starting to catastrophize and mm-hmm. I can stop it. And I think about, you know, two or three years ago, I don't know, I don't think I could have stopped myself from catastrophizing. So, because I didn't recognize, oh, that's just a thought, right? You're just 
thinking, doesn't, don't believe everything you think. Uh, all, I can haul out all the contemplative um, bumper stickers right now, but there is deep truth in those sayings, those uh, witticisms or whatever. And that, you know, you don't, it's just not, you don't have to believe everything you think. And I, ha- I, it, I've created space in myself to take a beat and realize, you know, just that's not actually happening. And just thinking that it might happen someday, but what's happening right now in the present moment. And, you know, again, it's just from repetition that some things there's muscle memory. Now when I start to panic, so, you know, you said panic attacks a lot. Now, when I, I feel the warning signals coming, it's like a spidey sense. And I, in my body knows, okay, I need to sit and I need to take at least three really long, deep breaths. And if that doesn't work, and I'm using air quotes with work there, then I go into my quiver of tools and I see what the next thing is I can do to bring myself back to the present, whether it's, you know, feeling the air that's moving on my face from the, the fan that's down there on the floor or, you know, feeling the embroidery on the bedspread that I'm sitting on or the dampness on the back of my neck. Cause I took a shower just before we started recording, whatever I can, there are skills that bring me back to the moment. And in this present moment, I am okay. I am held by a universe that is for me and I don't have to worry about what happens next and I can control the things that I can control, which is how I am right now. And that sounds like so much pablum. (laughs) And it sounded that way to me too, but it's changed so much about how I move through the world in the last few years. Odd that it, coincided with a global pandemic and i uh but it whatever the universe and its poetry its poetic timing whatever it is that's how it happened for me the the worst thing happened i was there was something that could kill me that i couldn't see and that you know breathing was dangerous how do you deal with that well you can completely flip out or you can try to do the spiritual mental equivalent of lifting 15 pound weights. So I lifted the weights. Ooh, that is so powerful. I think it's funny, just the idea of having a meditation practice. Like I love that idea (laughs) and I want to be better at it. But as I was sharing with you guys before, I have a bunch of jobs right now that start really early in the morning. And uh, it is hard for me to carve out that time, but what a great reminder that like I can only be as present as I'm working on being present. And I think, you know, it's interesting because we often talk about, Justin and I often talk about how within certain faith formations, we're taught not to trust our feeling or not to trust our thoughts, but more Mm -hmm. not to trust our feelings. And and your desires, anything in there. Yeah, right. What you're saying is pay attention to your thoughts, but realize it's just a thought. Don't try to fight it away or tell it it's bad. But ask it, like, what are you here for? Like, what is it about this that is scary for you? What are you trying to do, mind? Are you trying to protect me from something? Because I think for many of us, we were taught just to, like, you know, guard your heart, guard your mind. Right. You know, you, you've Live in got fear. to 
yeah, gird yourselves. I don't know. <laughs> or, or yell, I will not live in fear so loud that you pretend that you're not afraid. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, Put on the, the thing, armor. I feel like the people that Put yell the at the loudest God, but are the most your mind. afraid. For sure. Yeah, they are really the most afraid. The loudest it feels like. Hey, you know, you can have a meditation practice that's 30 seconds a day. That's the other thing. And you know who taught me that? Questlove. I thought you were going to say something like Father Richard or like No, (laughs) Gomez, man It's his book It's his book about creativity where he talks about, you know, he's practiced or tried to practice lots of different kinds of meditation over there, and we're about the same age over the years, and at some point he learned, I don't know how long ago, you know, sometime in the last decade, let's say that you can do many meditations. It can be three minutes. It can be 30 seconds. Sometimes it's three seconds. But it's just that stop. Where am I? And go. Yeah. So you don't have to start by trying to figure out how to carve out 20 minutes twice a day or 30 minutes or an hour. And you don't have to go to an ashram and you don't have to. You can be just present. It can be sitting on the couch with tenor for three minutes. I walk my dog really far in the morning. That is there you no go. matter what. That is my thing. My dog and I go on these walks and I really do try to be really aware before. You're like, already doing that. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that is part of the reason I am a non-anxious present. You know, I deal with, you know, as I work for this coffee company, part of what I'm doing is leadership development. So I get to deal with people in pretty stressful situations who are asking me, what, what should I do? What would you do? And I find that uh, mostly because it's not, like all on me, like ministry was, but I'm able to be the person who's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also hearing what you're not saying. There's a lot behind what you're saying. Like, let's, let's be present to whatever that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that comes from learning how to slow down um, and be non-reactionary because I lived my life so reactionary. You know, it was like one person's comment meant we needed to change everything. Or you'd spin out for weeks at a time we, we mm-hmm. we're wired similarly yeah we in are. my yeah. experience you and you and i and you and me but yeah i mean and you can be a non-anxious presence and still just be a bundle of energy and light up the room that you walk into like you do because <laughs> you do no you don't have to just be like mm, you know or stoned or seemingly stoned or stoned on your own sonic energy psychic energy or whatever it is but you can be non-anxious. I, I think people gravitate toward that because there's so much anxiety right now. And so if you think about the people in your life that you want to go to in moments of uh, tumult, uh, uncertainty, fear, shittiness, depression, whatever it is, like who who's your whoopee and what are they like in the world? And yeah. I'm guessing for most of us that that person is somebody who's pretty non-anxious. Yeah. Someone who's, someone who's done the work a bit yeah. and has been around the block a few times. I mean, we, we make fun of the, the 20 year old mystic and, but it's a part of it is just the accumulation of life experience. Yeah. Like yeah. the worst thing that could happen to you, the worst thing that could happen to you did happen to you and you survived and wow. you survive those a couple times. Then you do have a perspective that you're like, okay, I can, I have a, I don't have to be as reactive anymore because yep. and that's, that's just something that you have to accumulate over time and, and doing the work 
because I, I do know that people in their 50s and 60s that have, they don't have 50 years of experience. They have one year of experience 50 times. Yep. Some people and, into their 80s. My mother, who left us three years ago at 85, was that it was like Groundhog Day for her every year of her life. Like she never, I don't, there was some accumulated wisdom, of course, but not that. She was definitely not a non-anxious presence. She's definitely not the person that I wanted to go to when I was in any mm. kind of crisis. But when you're talking about 20-year-olds, you're just describing somebody, and I just realized, like, oh, I've got one of those. So my 23-year-old son. Oh, that feels it, weird. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> when she met him, he was, he was 13. He, I don't think he'd call himself, I, well, I'm absolutely certain he wouldn't call himself a mystic, but he is definitely a non-anxious presence. Oh, always. But he grew up in drama before he, you yeah, guys. Yeah, he had a lot of trauma before mm -hmm. the before we moved out here, before he came to the United States and stuff. And I think, and that's why he's that, like, he's, we used, when he was little, I had a t-shirt I got from one Christmas that said, calm is my superpower. And it's, it is because he has faced the very worst things that most of us could imagine and survived them before mm -hmm. the age of nine. You know. Well, and that's what I want to like encourage so many of our folks like in Discord describe the things that they've gone through or so many of our listeners will reach out to us like we get a lot of DMs and whatnot and they describe absolutely soul crushing experiences, mm. soul crushing experiences, devastation of career, loss of community, unsure what, where's the steady ground and yet they come through it in such beautiful ways and I think sometimes we don't stop and say, huh, I did that. I, yeah. you know, someone called me brave the other day. It was actually my therapist. My therapist called me brave the other day. And oh, I was like, a high five. Yeah. Achievement <laughs> unlocked there. <laughs> that was wow. a weird flex guys. <laughs> Just so you know, also the most Southern California sentence I've ever said is my therapist said, my therapist said, by the way, that's how you start dating here. You ask someone mm -hmm. what, who's your therapist. My how therapist you said, young? But I have one of those moments where I was like, I looked at her and I said, I'm not brave. And she's like, oh, my oh, gosh, yes, you are girl. Yeah, you are. And like she like listed all these things that sounded like somebody else. And so I want I want people to be able to own their story of like, yeah, I came through this, which means I can mm -hmm. probably come through something else. And I think you're mm -hmm. right. A, a pandemic, a loss of community, like pile that on folks starting to transition and mm -hmm. their faith belief or whatever it might be. And then add like a global, everybody doesn't know what side is up. And you used to have all the answers and now you don't have all the answers. It is dysregulating. And yet here you are, you're breathing, you're yeah. here, you're going to give it a try. You're listening to this podcast. So at least you've like at least put, well, I don't know how you're listening to it, but at least you've put in the time to do that because something about that was compelling. And I, I think sometimes it's important even and almost meditative to say, I did it. Like I... Yeah. I got up, oh, I tried something for different. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I can do hard things, you know, mm -hmm. that that's a sentence I started to tell myself a few years ago. Mm -hmm. No, I can do hard things. And again, it's like that meditation practice or lifting weights, like the more you do it, the more you're able to do it. And I think half the battle is recognizing that you can do it and you have already done it. You've already survived and thrived maybe it's in a tiny infinitesimal way to you but you have and you can do it again 
And that's, that's really all we need is the certainty has never been one of my favorite things, but there's this assurance that you can keep going. If you look back and go, okay, I already did that. You just do it again. Uh, it's not easy, but you, you, we can, we can do it and we must. Yeah. The number of times you've redefined your vocation and yet stayed within <laughs> a vocation because you still do. You, you are now someone who helps other people write and who helps other people get book deals and who fiercely prevents people from getting shitty book deals. <laughs> That's right. We're overdue for the conversation, by the way. <laughs> oh, I know. Hey, this girl could probably use that. But there is this sense of like, I'm going to kind of ride the tide and and yet also grieve that there isn't this, the, the world I once lived in and existed in no longer exists. And it's okay to feel yeah. a little bit of grief around that. Oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely all right. And I think it's kind of necessary to, to grieve those changes and those losses. And you know what? Grief is not a competition. There, there isn't a, like a grief, a meter, like you're what, if you've lost something and that's causing you grief in your heart, then that's all you need permission to mm-hmm. do to handle it. It's not like, well, you know, I'm grieving that my the industry I once loved and the vocation that I felt I was called to is sort of disappeared or I'm not able to do or I refuse to do it for free, whatever. Boo-hoo. That's not as bad as, you know, somebody who has cancer of the ass, whatever. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of suffering. It's a different kind of somebody who just lost a parent or a, a, a animal companion or their house or their faith. It's, you know, it's not a contest. It's all grief. All grief is all grief is grief, right? Yeah. So it's okay to deal with it in whatever way you need to just don't not deal with it because then it just sneaks up on you and grief is a sneaky bitch and it's best to see it coming if you can, or just to know that sometimes it comes out of left field and there's no rhyme or reason. There's no time frame for it. There's no wrong time. There's no expiration date. And so know that it's going to hit you. Sometimes it's like a smell in a coffee shop or somebody's perfume and suddenly I'm missing somebody who's been gone for a long time. Listening to a Brandy Carlisle song. Yeah. Or like for me, the smell of newsprint. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Mimeograph or that. It's something that just takes you back to a memory. And sometimes it's a happy memory. And often there's some grief attached to it too because we're not at that moment anymore we're in a different moment and that's okay how much of the i don't know i mean i've not been around that long but it feels like things are people are getting exponentially weirder and unhealthier how much of that do you think is just undealt with grief tons of it and what's not grief is fear Mm. and fear is like Fear and grief are similar beasts to me because we have to live with both of them. But if you don't turn around and look at your fear and at least figure out why you're afraid, not every fear can be overcome, right? But we could figure out a way to give it a lot less control over the way we move through the world. Yeah. And I think that's... Grief and just fear 
just out- outrageous fear, levels of fear. It's it's not unfounded. This is an incredibly shitty time for the human race, and it's scary. So yeah, and we so we're all there's different levels of fear, but again, if you don't deal with grief, grief is going to deal with you. And if you don't figure out why you're afraid of whatever it is, clowns, clowns in the white house, clowns in the church, snakes, snakes in the white house, snakes in the church, germs, whatever the fear is. Yeah. I'm playing. It's okay to be, to have fear. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing. It protects us from like, you know, falling off of cliffs and, touching really hot things like fire but to let your life be navigated by fear is not a good or healthy thing mm-hmm. for individual people and it's certainly not a good or healthy thing for community and we see that happening running rampant these days in a way that i haven't experienced before and i grew up <laughs> back in the 70s where we still had like bomb atomic bomb drills where we used to have to practice hiding under our desk i don't know what the hell that would have done but that was just a part of growing up but it wasn't now it's active shooter Mm -hmm. god i can't we have a a, my husband's older than me and i have four older stepchildren and they all have children so we have 10 grandchildren and i can't fathom that that level of fear and it's not far-fetched right i grew up two towns away from newtown connecticut the last place on the face of the earth i would have imagined something like like what happened at sandy hook happened so yeah those very real fears that were just sort of conceptual or far-fetched when i was a kid or or not that now so you know, every parent, every person needs to figure out how to look at fear, how to deal with fear instead of, you know, I spent a lot of my life being afraid or being scared or being frightened or just worrying about lots of things. And that is just wasted life force. And so that's a another thing that I think I've been learning in a really intense way in the last few years. But it took being deliberate in my life and going, I don't want to live the next 50 years of my life from this place, from a bunker, even if it never showed, even if that's not what my, the, the, the character I play in life in public looks like my heart was in a bunker and was just afraid of lots of things. And so I, I literally took an inventory before I turned 50, I wrote down all the things that I was afraid of. And I have sort of systematically been going through and looking at them and uh, overcoming what I can overcome, integrating what I can integrate. But I'm a lot more aware of what they are. And mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of the journey to not living from that place. Yeah, I I like the language of looking at your fear. Yeah. because. My experience, at least in evangelicalism and as a pastor in that space, is like you don't look at the fear, you push it down, you ignore it, you, you know, name it and claim it, whatever you want to call it. Like anything. We're more than but, overcomers. I can do anything through Christ Jesus yeah. who strengthens me. 
That's oh right. And and experiencing fear was seen as like a character flaw. Yeah, like, yeah. your your faith wasn't strong enough. Yeah, and just give it to Jesus. Yeah, I and I'm, I don't say that derisively. Those are all things that people have said, and I think there's. And I a, wanted to believe. I mean, that's the yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. Is I wanted that to be the case. I wanted to be that. You know, so I another weird flex. I ran a half marathon yesterday. <laughs> and uh <laughs> like it, you do like you do at my age and actually did okay i like but my last couple of miles were rough but my friend crystal came from washington to run with me it was her birthday and she's like really fast guys like super fast but she started the start of the race with me and we were laughing because both of us you know were very involved in evangelical spaces actually that's how we met in some ways but uh <laughs> we've been friends for now 15 years and uh we were there was all these people that had like God shirts to help them through the race, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Not going to judge that. <laughs> no, That's, not at all. Hey, if it helps you. But I told her she had to buy me a drink if when the guy turned around, <laughs> his shirt didn't say, I can do, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or she had to buy me a drink mm-hmm. if that yes. was the case. And he turned around and his shirt said, I can do all things. I love it. I did not make her yeah. buy me a drink, but you know, and, and we take that and we say those things, mm. but what does that actually mean to be strengthened? What does it, and I think part of it is to face the fear. I can't, you know, you have to face, like, I loved your workout analogy. You know, if, if I just decided to like, okay, I can run and like just tomorrow, I had never trained. I just got up and started running. My, I'd fall apart, but I run a lot. And in a weird way, it's become my meditative practice. It's become my culture, my community. It's my church in some ways that people, if something were to happen sense to, to me, me. Yeah. So they were to happen to me tomorrow. I think the people that would show up would be a lot of the people I, I run and work out with. Mm-hmm. And I also think it shows me that nothing, I have to face the thing I'm afraid of. Like I have to face and it takes practice. Mm -hmm. The, the run, I don't think I can do the, like literally yesterday, my, thank God I I run with a friend of mine, Sean, we, during the pandemic, he just decided to join my running club. Like he's a friend of mine. He was overweight and he just decided, he calls himself overweight. I did not call him that. He lost 80 pounds. He now is faster than me, which is really, really hard for (laughs) me when you like had a friend like start running teeny, with you tiny mm-hmm. bit competitive too which i know nothing about <laughs> right and now he's faster the world but no. yesterday he had to and i think this is part of it too is having people around you who will help you face it so we were mm-hmm. running and uh the last two miles you know i was making fun of that i can do all things through christ who strengthens me but i literally was like i can't i can't go faster my legs i knew what time i wanted to hit and my legs would not go faster and i mm-hmm. was I would say almost panicking. Then I said mm-hmm. audibly, I can't do this. And I didn't mean I was going to drop out of the race, but I meant I'm, I can't reach the goal that I had had. And my running partner said, eh, yes, you can. And I was hey. like, what? He goes, I know you. I've run with you. You've got this. And so I said, I've got this. And just saying, I've got this over and over again. I've got this. And I don't know who was moving the finish line, but somebody kept moving it further and further away <laughs> to where I was like, how many fans are there at this goddamn race? Because there were so many people to run through. And it was great. And my friends were there and they took pictures and I looked terrible. I looked so pissed off. But I was more angry at myself until of course, until Sean said to me, I've run with you. Yeah, you can do you this. Can do 
Yeah. You can face this thing and it might be like a stupid analogy, but I was in actual literal pain and mentally mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. something for me when I hit 12 miles that goes, yeah, you're done. Um, and so to mm-hmm. go, I had, still have one and a half more miles, which normally is nothing. I think when you're, when your system and a lot of our systems are overrun with fear because of we're living in the world right now and then add on actual personal trauma, it's really easy to go. I cannot do this until you turn around and face and go, wait, I can do this or have people in your life who are like, Hey, let me remind you who you are. Mm-hmm. Well, we all need that, right? People who name us and mm-hmm. t- and tell us who see who we are before we see who we are. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and if we're lucky, some of those people travel with us and do that for us multiple times over the years to see you again, who d- you don't get stuck in time with who continue to see you and go, this is what you are now. Do you see this? And, you know, and we do that for other people, right? You know, it's, um, I was just thinking about the turning around and looking at the thing. Oh, I know. It's when you said you, you physically felt like you couldn't go any farther. When I, and I think Sarah, you probably know the story already, right after my, my mother died and the, and my mother, I love my mother, but my mother was my chief critic and antagonist my entire life. And so it was a complicated, difficult relationship. And she always wanted to go home to Jesus. And so I was really happy for her when she did. That's, and, you know, she's wherever she is, she's where she wanted to be. And that's been good for her. And my mom was very, a very, a very weirdly, a very faithful person, like a deeply, deeply faithful person of faith, but also like just ruled by fear. And so I was like, I don't want to do that. And where do I start? And I had made that list. And I, for one of my earliest memories, if not my very earliest memories, actually of a nightmare of falling and, and, and a falling dreams are very commonplace. Lots of people have them. And I had this very specific dream that I had throughout my life, throughout my childhood, into my adulthood. And it was about falling off of a rope bridge across a ravine. I, I And where does a three-year-old get the idea of falling through a rope bridge over a ravine? I don't know. I was precocious. I probably saw something in a book, but had that dream over and over again. And I was like, I don't want to be afraid of that anymore. And so being, I was taking my instructions literally I'm going to confront my fear by jumping off a bridge, bungee jumping, which was a very not me thing to do. And uh, I, I, I was adventurous in lots of ways and a risk taker in lots of ways. Not physically was not cheap among them. And so I ended up going to this bridge in Bend, Oregon, over this beautiful ravine. And I did, <laughs> it wasn't I did when I was living this. there? No, it wasn't. This was before. So this was the, the summer of 2019, late late summer, late August. I had, I didn't do this on purpose, but it turned out to be the highest bungee jump in North America. It's 350 feet. And <laughs> Oh dear God. <laughs> nice. And I, uh, you know, I, I told like, I told Maury, my husband, I told one of my best friends, Adam Phillips, who Sarah, I think, you know, who is a recovering pastor. Now working yes, for is. USAID, working for the Biden administration. We're, um, we're going to well, have him on this show once he gets clearance. It's literally going through clearance. That's, fascinating. That's and, uh, and one of my best friends. And just so I, st- I stopped at his house. They were That's when they were still living in Portland. And so they knew. And then I told a friend who I knew if I told, I couldn't back out of doing it. Like the morning I was going to do it. And I got there and it was terrifying. It was really high. And, I, you know, I, 
all of the things. I, I, I watched it for a while. I put my journalism hat on. I talked to people as if I was going to be writing a story about it. And then it came the time that I had to get on a scale in front of a stranger. That was fun. So they could put me on the right bungee cord. And there was a platform that hung out. There's video of this, by the way, uh, over this, this gorgeous ravine. And I've got all the gear on. I get all the way up there. There's an Irish guy. You know, I felt like it was a God nod for me. Who's like, the last guy that you see has got a camera on his head before you go off. And I had envisioned swan diving into the abyss and I got all the way up there and I was literally like two, my toes two inches from the edge and my body would not move, would not move. Couldn't do it. (laughs) Clearly this is not the first time this has happened. And so the guy who owns it appears behind me and gets me to turn around and hold on to his wrist. In my mind, somewhere, there's this voice going, the wrists are the weakest part of the body. Like It's very easy to break free from there. And he just was like, make eye contact with me. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And you see on the, on the video of this, he basically leans me over the ravine and drops me off the bridge. <laughs> and... It's so terrifying. Everything, every primal synapse in your body is just screaming no, why you shouldn't do this. And then when it happens, your body is so stunned that you can't, most people don't even scream until they hit the bottom and start to come back up. The bounce is really an interesting experience. I feel like that's a metaphor. Anyway, and I ended up screaming, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And at first I thought I was talking to James up on the platform. And then I thought I was talking to God. And then I realized I was talking to the universe. Mm -hmm. And that was like a turning point. And, you know, you jump off and you bounce a few times. And then there's the moment where they, they don't talk about where they lower down a clip that you have to like unclip one thing and clip yourself onto so they can haul you back up. And all I could think of was like, that millisecond of not clicking it right and just like falling to my death. So once again, confronted the fear, did it came up and then had, um, what's that thing that you, when you work out or when you run endorphins, Endorphins. I had, I was, I should not have been able to, somebody should have taken my keys away. Like I was so out of it on this blissed out. I could not believe I did that. I was so proud of myself and I've never had the dream again. Hmm. That was three years ago. Wow. And so that was sort of like in what about Bob death therapy, you know, That's if one I of could our do that, yeah. if I could do that, I could do lots of other things. I could yeah. look at my fear of making a mistake. That's not nearly as scary as, you know, being dropped into a ravine by a really friendly guy named James. Yeah. He assured Aww. me that I'd be okay. Anyway. So that's just. Kathleen, uh, you have been. <laughs> That I, I just that was it. That was it. That was everything we could hope for. For those of you who are out there feeling the fear of like, I don't know what I'm doing next, but I just jumped off a ravine. <laughs> like, I don't know. There is <laughs> there's gonna be a bounce. It's still scary, but at the other side is is a sense of euphoria. It's the same with running, guys. Mm-hmm. After I was done, my friend's daughter came running over to, you know, she came to have lunch with us and she yelled rah-rah. She calls me Robert <laughs> instead of Sarah. And I, I, I don't think I've been as joyful playing with that kid. I mean, I love that kid, but 
there's just something about, oh, I did something. And yeah, that's the same for life. So thank you for joining us. And I think really you gave us, we usually ask like, what's the one thing you would do? But I think you've given us that answer. Like maybe face your fear, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, whatever it is. Cilantro. You hate cilantro. You would never hate eat cilantro. that. No, I love that I that's it. the next I'm thing. Not afraid of it. Like bungee jumping off the highest bridge in North America. And item, item number two is eat cilantro. Oh, gross. And I know that she hates oh, it. I do. I have, it's, it's, but that's, I can't control that. It's that might be biological. I don't, that's, it is. That's, it is. It's yeah. A, yeah. That thing. Well, it's thank an you enzyme. for Thank you for joining us and thank you friends for joining us. Stick around for, as always, we will uh, read a poem or some sort of quote at the end of this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're enjoying the conversations you hear on recovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in what's known as the recovery room on discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to be a part of this community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and that gives you access to the community resources as well as it helps us to be able to produce the show. Check it out on patreon.com slash revcovery. Now we know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are so many ways you can support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you are currently listening, and make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Revcovery Room is on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And that's our handle. So come find us and let's keep the conversation going. On to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's so good to be able to have these conversations and to be able to think about these things as we you know, continue to recover and transform and change and, and age even. Age is, I think, a good thing in a lot of ways to give that experience and that perspective. And... As I think, thought about a poem to share, I wanted to share a poem by John O'Donohue. Uh, Sarah's not the only one that can read John O'Donohue poems. I also can as well. And I wanted to read a John O'Donohue poem uh, called Blessing, because I feel like it touched on a lot of the themes and really it it is a lot of the hopes that, that I have for this audience and for myself. And I wanted to read it to you. This is Blessing by John O'Donohue. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays and the curric of thought and the stain of ocean blackens beneath you. May there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.